way to Romans chapter 8 again, if you would. Hopefully switching these uh, messages and these services won't throw you off too much. But in Romans chapter number 8, we dealt last week with what we entitled uh, the saving acts of God. And we'll just say that we dealt with part one of that, which was verse number 28, where we looked at the expression, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. We spent our entire time last week on verse 28 alone. And we came to the conclusion, the Bible conclusion, that God governs all things by His, prov- by His providence according to His purpose. Since I stumbled over that, let me say that again. God governs all things by His providence according to His purpose. All things work together for good to them that love God, them who are the called according to his purpose, is what Romans 8.28 teaches us. And as we looked at that text last week, we understood that there is this certainty. There's this certainty that tells us that it isn't that God may work things out. The Bible clearly teaches us that they, he is working things out. In other words, Our Christianity, our belief in Christ is not based on some hope that says God will eventually work all things out. Biblically, he's teaching us that he is currently working things out for good. We talked about a lot of things last week about sometimes how uh, things may not look good all the time. But those who love God, those who are in Christ, can rest assured this morning that everything that is going on in life is working together for good to them that love God. As a continuation continuation of these saving acts, we'll just keep this very simple. Last week was part one, so what do you think we'll call this week? We'll call it part two. There's There's no clever title Uh, There's no catchy phrase, but these are the saving acts of God. Man is either saved by God or he thinks he's saved by himself. There are only two beliefs in the world. You You can literally bring every religion and every belief system down to two separate and distinct thoughts. It is either God who saves or man believes he saves himself. Every religion hinges on those. Now, it's variance who his God is. But do you know that nearly every religion in the world, and I call it religion, is based upon what man does or man's response? What you're going to find is very clearly in the two verses we're going to try to deal with this morning, which is verse 29 and 30, you're not going to see an emphasis on the word I. You're going to see an emphasis on the word he. As a matter of fact, it's alarming how many times the word he appears and what he did. Look with with me at verse 29. Remembering verse 28 as the saving act of God according to his purpose. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. As you read those two verses, again, notice the use of that personal pronoun, he. 
how it comes at the very beginning. For whom he... Is that he a reference to the, say, the lost man or the unbelieving man? Or is that a reference to God? That's a reference to God. For he did foreknow. And look at the very last part of verse 30. He justified them, he also glorified. So we see this pronoun, which seems so simplistic. Maybe it doesn't even seem important to us, but it is the very, it's the very hinge in which these verses swing. This is an act of God. Now, man has corrupted this text by turning the he's into I. You could do a study just on the word he and change the word, the pronoun he with the word I, and you will change the entire meaning of verses 29 and 30. But there are many who believe that it wasn't God who foreknew me in the sense that the Bible means it. They say, God just knew what I was going to do. And because God knew what I was going to do, then God did this. Everybody following me? It hinges on what man did. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It does not hinge on some sort of foreseen faith. Now, if you get this word wrong, if you get the word foreknowledge wrong, you will get the whole doctrine of salvation wrong. Now, that may seem dramatic, but that's the reality. If you get foreknowledge wrong, you will get the whole doctrine of salvation wrong. Remember, your salvation is either God or it's man. There is no in-between. It's not even a mix of God and man equals salvation. It is the God who saves. We sang that in our, in our opening hymn this morning. Come praise and glorify who? The God who saves. Now you say, preacher, that hymn is not inspired text. I realize that, but it's biblically accurate. We didn't sing... Come and praise and glorify me who saved myself from the depths of despair. Come praise, glorify the God who saves. Either God is totally sovereign in salvation or he's not God at all. Many people want to make God sovereign in everything but salvation. They say God's in control of everything, but you can't go there, preacher, because if you go there, you're taking man out of the equation. It does no such thing. Remember this, man is included in this equation. He's just not the author of his salvation. Man is everywhere in these texts. Matter of fact, let me, let me kind of blow your mind this morning. Even man's free will is in these verses. Believing in the foreknowledge of God and the predestinating of God does not destroy that say man has no free will at all. We've learned that in the study of Romans. We've gotten that far. We should already be, have arrived at that. But you'll notice that if we believe that salvation is of the Lord, how often do we forget that? We forget that however small it might appear, this little pronoun, he, is the very hinge on which all of this swings. He did foreknow. He also did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Again, I mentioned this, that this is often referred to as the golden chain of 
salvation, or we could refer to them as the golden chains of God's saving acts. So we see the phrase, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Five links in that chain. You might suppose, and you may think, all right, I've heard many preachers, many people say this, that salvation is all of the man of man himself. Man has to make a choice. Now that's free will being pushed into falsehood. Salvation is not decision making. Okay, it's not, I'm going to make a decision for myself. I'm going to weigh out in the balances and see if this is something I might want to do. Now, man left to himself never makes the choice for God. In other words, he never says, if you're going to give me a choice between God and my nature, I'm choosing my nature every single time. If, if you want to give me a choice between doing what pleases my flesh or pleases God, I'm going to please myself every single time. That's a depravity of man, and that's the part that we don't want to admit, that we, we would not choose God on our own. If you were to take and rip verses 29 and 30 out of the Bible, now you can't do this with any text, by the way. You couldn't even take one verse out of the book of Chronicles, even one of the begats. You realize if you take one of the begats out of the Chronicles, you mess the whole Bible up. But if you rip this from the pages, you have literally taken the saving acts of God out of Scripture. But even if you ripped it out to study the Old Testament and the New Testament, you still come to the same conclusion that it is God who foreknew. It is God who predestinated. It is God who called. It is God who justifies. And it is God who will glorify. Many people say this verse has been misinterpreted and people look at it wrong. The plain truth here is very clear that there is such a thing as free will. If you were to stand up here, I was to bring a man in and he would say to you, there is no such thing as man's free will. He's lying to you. That's a falsehood. There is free will. And you will make the grandest of mistakes if you take the side that says, all right, I don't believe in free will at all. I'm going to go, you're still in error. This is not about just totally negating man's responsibility. You don't, this, these verses do not negate man's responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. Again, who is the author of salvation? It is God. So who is it that makes man willing? It is God. People want to say that it's all free will, but what about free grace? We're caught in the idea, I want free will. All right, but what about free grace? What is Ephesians 2 about? Free grace. In Ephesians 2, did any of you read anything that we did to earn that? Did we read any account that it just said those two words, but God, who is rich in mercy? has placed you in the body of Christ. That's all linked to Romans 8, verses 29 and 30 as well. Free grace. We make a greater mistake if we say there's no free will of man. 
But we also need to understand that it is God who works our salvation from beginning to end. Now again, let's look at these phrases. And again, I, I wish I could be as exhaustive as I need to be. You're probably saying, preacher, you are exhaustive. I know. But it needs to be more exhaustive. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now again, I told you, if you miss foreknow or foreknowledge, you miss the entire salvation, the doctrine of salvation. The word foreknew has been translated by some to mean simply God foresaw who would believe. But the word says, the word of God says, it is foreordained, foreappointed from God, or by God rather, from all of eternity. In other words, man says, okay, I, I believe the word foreknowledge is in the Bible. I believe the word foreknow is there. But I believe what foreknow means is that it's just something God knew would happen. Now, let me ask you this. What does God not know? <laughs> does he not know anything? So we're going to limit God to just simply saying God's knowledge is just limited. Man's salvation is just limited down to what he knows man's going to do. I have news for you. God knows what you're going to think about in 30 seconds. God knows what you thought about last night. God knows exactly what you're going to be thinking about 30 years from now to the minute, to the second. You reveal nothing to God. When you go to God in prayer and you tell him or inform him, you realize you're not telling him something he doesn't already know. Matter of fact, it's so extreme, he knew you were going to tell him that before you told him. And then that's when people go to the extreme and they say, then why tell him anything? Because we're commanded to pray. We're commanded to pray. Now, there are some texts that will very clearly show us that this foreknowledge is not just simply based upon what man's going to do. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2, the Bible says this, and we've, we studied this book on Wednesday evenings a while back, but Peter, as he's writing to the strangers that are scattered throughout these believers, the word elect and foreknowledge appear in the same verse. Verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten. What does it mean to begot or to begat? It means to give birth to hath begotten us, has birthed us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at the word foreknowledge there. Foreknowledge is not just merely God knowing beforehand, it's an act of choice. What does God choose? God chooses, it's a part of God's decrees where he decrees eternally that those whom he has chosen will come into a state of grace and will at last go into a state of glory. 
In other words, what you have happening here is you have God not just basing it and waiting to see what man's going to do. You have God actually making the choice and eternally decreeing that which will be. Now again, this doctrine, the first time many hear it, they say that cannot be so. And I would ask you the question, why? Is God limited by you? Is God limited by me? Do we really think that the God who spoke the universe into existence has to wait for our approval or to wait for our decision? Or could it be that God has actually made the choice by choosing whom he would? Again, choice is not a bad word when it comes to God. Election is not a bad word when it comes to God. I go back to the book of Acts, chapter number 13, and let's look at a couple other passages here. We did preach in the book of Acts, so this is not a, a new verse either. And I remember uh, very clearly that we dealt with this idea of foreknowledge and predestination and things, even when we dealt with this in the book of Acts. Acts, chapter number 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, now, this is referenced back to verse 47, when the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life did what? Believed. As many as were ordained, only those to whom God has sovereignly appointed to salvation will believe the gospel. That's what that means. Folks, I, I'm, I have tried to be so honest with you, and I try to be honest with you about everything. I fought this doctrine for years. And I'm, ta I'm not talking about just a, a little fight. I fought this and fought this and fought this because my humanness doesn't like what I'm reading until I come to the reality that had it not been for this, I would still be dead in my sins. I considered the alternative. If this isn't true, what's the alternative? The alternative is I'm dead still. So what do I get from this? I get a grand hope to say, wait a minute, if I know the Lord, it was a work of God it saved me. I have no room to say, look what Jeremy did. Amen. I have no room to say, look what my children did. Look what my wife has done. Look what our, our congregation has done. We can only glorify He who is behind it, which is God Himself. Churches are infiltrated by man glory. And self-glory about what I'm doing and what I've accomplished for God. When you read verses like this, you realize God never intended it to be that way. Over in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter number uh, 2, I think this might have been our scripture reading from last week. Uh, one of them anyway. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul, as he writes here, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now, again, we've talked about this a lot. If that word means choices for everybody, does that mean God lied? Is everyone going to be saved? 
No. So then that means that if God didn't really do this, chosen you, that's specific, to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God eternally chose whom he would save. God saves his elect by calling them by the Spirit and by the gospel so that sinners become believers. What's the ultimate purpose of God's calling? Right there it is. That ultimately he will bring those, the elect, into the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When is that glory going to be revealed? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We've studied this for so long, it seems like we could almost make assumptions, but I dare say we should not make any assumptions. And then Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16. People like to point this and say, well, that was just for Paul. But I would, I would uh, kindly disagree with that. Paul writes that he has, he has written about his previous life, how he had profited in verse 14 in the Jews' religion above many my equals, more exceedingly zealous. Uh, Paul declares that I was, the, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I didn't know God. I didn't know the Lord. And up to that point, he could have said this was all just what happened. But look what he says about himself in verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Let me ask you the question. Did Paul live his whole life as if he was called by the grace of God? No, he didn't. Because what happened to him? He lived nearly half of his life as a Pharisee who hated God. But when was he separated unto salvation? In his mother's womb. That separation that took place there, he called me by his grace. And look what he says in verse 16. Here was the calling that God put on Paul's life, not only to salvation, but to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Literally, we see that this this separation that Paul talks about in verse 15, that word separated literally means to be marked off by bounds. This is a crude illustration, but you have a property and you put up a fence. Inside of that fence is marked off as yours, right? As a matter of fact, you probably have such kind neighbors that if you go one inch over the property line, they're going to call the authorities on you, right? That's not your property. You're on the property line, but that's marked off separated as your own. That's what God did with Paul. And that's what Paul was acknowledging. When was he marked off? From my mother's womb. That is an act of predestination. Again, foreknowledge and predestination are going to go together. We'll see when we, when we bring these things together. God chose whom he would save and when he would convert them before they were ever born. Now folks, why do I tell you over and over and over again, don't give up on anybody today who is not a professing believer. Don't give up on them. Continue praying to that end. That's why this pulpit thunders every week, repent and believe the gospel to a church. Folks, this is not an evangelistic campaign out under a tent somewhere. 
I'm preaching this over and over and over again to a church body of people who are Sunday morning at a church when most of the rest of the world is home still in bed. I'm preaching the gospel to people primarily who say we're saved. You say, well, what about my, what about my loved one who is still unconverted? Don't quit. Paul spent half of his life as a Pharisee. Nobody would have looked at Paul and said, no, that's a man of God. But yet the Bible says, I separated him off. I set boundaries around him when he was in his mother's womb. When you realize that salvation is all of the Lord, you stop playing games and you stop trying gimmicks to get people to say what you want them to say. And yet people say what you want them to say all the time and there's no change in them. They go on living the same life they always lived. Yet you go home and to your church body and you say, I led 15 people to Christ this week and none of the 15 ever darkened the doors of a church anywhere, but they think they got their get out of hell free card because you told them to simply just pray a prayer and you're in. It doesn't work that way. Now, by the way, don't, don't make prayer the enemy. People will often said, so you're saying I can't pray for salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying if you believe that the prayer saved you, there's a problem. I, I, I almost guarantee that the day when you know you've been converted, there's going to be a time of prayer. There's going to be a time of fellowship with the Lord. There's going to be a time of praising God for what he's done. I think your normal response is going to be to respond in prayer and thank God. Thank you for being merciful to me. Thank you for giving my sins. Thank you for making me willing to love you. So don't ever say, hey, salvation has nothing to do with a prayer. It's just the prayer doesn't save you. Just like no other act saves you. It's a saving act of God. So when we stop and we think about the sense in which if this was what God meant, that foreknowledge is just knowing what God's going to do, he already knows all about man. He already knows about their birth. He knows about their life. He knows about the death. He knows about your destiny. He knows your eternity. But in this eternal love and in eternal grace, throughout Scripture, the Bible refers to those he knows as his sheep. Now, you've heard me say this many times. Goats don't become sheep, and sheep don't become goats. Now, in man-centered evangelism, what that preacher's trying to do is convert a goat into a sheep. Instead of knowing that there might be the sheep sitting there who still yet have not come to the full knowledge of salvation. They're one of His because He eternally marked them out from the foundation of the world they just have not had their eyes opened yet. And what a glorious day when the eyes open. Because that person who seemed to know nothing about God the day before suddenly says, the Lord Jesus Christ has opened my eyes and he's saved me. And there's no glory about what the man did. There's only glory about what God has done. That's what makes passages like John chapter number 10, which we've covered and we will cover in depth when we get to it again, John chapter number 10, verses number 14 through 16, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep. The word know there is a powerful word. He says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to the difference between Israel and the Gentiles. He says, not all my sheep are Israel, and not all my sheep are Gentiles. I have sheep of Israel, and I have sheep of Gentiles. And you better praise God that we've been grafted into the body of Christ as Gentiles. Because there is a special purpose that God has for the nation of Israel. But he says, I know my sheep, they're known of me. Them also, what does, this, what does the verse say? Them also I must bring. I must bring whom? I must bring my sheep. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Converts from the Gentile world, converts from Israel, they hear my voice, not directly, but through the faithful preaching of Christ's word. When you came to Christ, it was through the faithful preaching of the word of God. People say often to make a mistake again. They said, okay, if God's foreknowledge is predestinated and he's foreordaining, then why preach? Because that's the way he brings his sheep home. So if some guy stands up and said, there's no need to preach, God's predetermined who's going to be saved anyway, it doesn't matter, that's heresy. The truth of the matter is the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of this book is the way Jesus Christ opens the eyes of those he has marked off, his sheep, even though they may sit today in an unconverted state that's recognizable to us. I may not see it. You may not see it. But he knows his sheep. When we think about the, the building and the, 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 what Christ is building, he's building into one church. That one church will be ruled by the word. The word will be ruled by Christ. He is gathering to himself all whom he has called, and to all he has called and justified, he will glorify. There's a sense in which we see that, okay, if God already knows all men, God knows all about them, what is man's responsibility? And we're going to deal with that over the coming weeks. But let's go back to our text again in Romans 8, 29, and look again. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine. And we're going to deal with predestination a bit further uh, probably next week. But notice he says, but these two go together, foreknowledge and predestination, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, this phrase tells us that this saving act of God, this predestination or this predetermination is for his eternal purpose. And what is that eternal purpose? That all he has called or all he has foreknew, all he's predestinated, that they would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose of God. His eternal purpose is that you and I, who are his sheep, will be conformed and be just like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't be foolish about this and say, so that means I'm going to look like him, talk like him, act like him. No. And by the way, I think it's sad, sad, sad when we even joke about that. I think it's sad when we say that, here's what I know, that when we get to heaven, we're all going to be 33 years old, and we're all going to wear a white robe, and we're all going to have a beard. Well, just on the surface, that's pretty silly. I'm not trying to be cute, but especially for you ladies, that's going to be really something. 
It doesn't tell us that we're going to be 33 years old because that's when he was crucified. It doesn't say anything about we're going to look like him. And it does say, and that's what makes those passages that we read, again, I've exhausted you with this intentionally. That's what makes passages like 1 John 3 mean so much. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. That's present tense. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Yes, we're the sons of God now, but what we're going to be has not yet been fully revealed. And here's what it is. But we know that when he shall appear, that's Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The blessedness that God's children have is still hidden. But when Christ appears, their vision of his glory will transform us into the same image. When you can see the image of Christ, you will be transformed into his image. Now that's what the Bible says was his purpose. In other words, the Bible doesn't even say you were predestined and by the foreknowledge of God to escape hell. Now, you get that blessing, but do you see that that's not the ultimate eternal purpose of God? So going back to Romans 8, 28, we looked at last week. All things work together for good to them that love God. God is working out this eternal purpose in you to conform you into the image of his son. That he, Christ, look what it says, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now again, foreknowledge is not equivalent to just simply knowing something beforehand. That's true of all things with God. Paul is not talking about something that's unspecified like foreseen faith. He's talking about this knowledge of a person and knowing this person. And he says that we're going to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn is an important principle throughout the Bible. Because not only has God set apart all the people that he chose from before the foundation of the world to receive salvation and eternal glory, but number two, God gives the gospel. It is God who gives the gospel. Christ is the, may be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, under the law, we've got to keep in mind the law here. Under the law, the firstborn was the Lord's choice. Okay, when you see the word firstborn here, this is not just a word we just kind of throw off the cuff and say, oh, what's it mean to be firstborn? According to the law, the firstborn was the choice of God. Okay, that, that first child, that firstborn. Emphasis is on the choice. Go all the way back to the, New, the Old Testament and look at Exodus. And look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And again, these, the, the principles and the things, these are messages that stand in themselves. But Exodus 13, verse number 1, the Lord speaking directly to Moses about this firstborn principle. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leaven bread 
be eaten. Notice the phrase or the word sanctify in verse number two. Sanctify unto me. This is the Lord's words to Moses. Set apart is what that word sanctify means. As sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb. And look what he says at the end. It is mine. When, when God's judgment fell, when God's judgment came, it was those, those, oldest, those oldest sons. Israel spared by the blood of the Lamb. The firstborn were an example of what was true of Israel, God's firstborn son, Israel, and his holy people and special possession. Christ is that supreme firstborn. He is holy, sanctified, set unto the Lord. Now notice again what Paul was writing about here, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the firstborn of the Father with regard to all creatures. Christ is the firstborn of all of God's sons. They are chosen in him. Christ is the firstborn from the dead to die no more. His is the chief glory. All that are in Christ, this principle of firstborn, are spared from the judgment of God. Now, when we stop and we think about this, and we think about, well, I just thought these verses were just about how a person gets saved. Yes, it is. But it's not about what man has done. It's about what God has done. That none of these things are being done just by accident. None of these things are being done by some act of coincidence. Because here's what we know, and I gave you the second point, that God gives the gospel. I didn't finish it. God gives the gospel and the Holy Spirit to all of his elect. When I use the phrase that God gives the Holy Spirit to every person, that's not true. But what is true, and as we'll deal with this next week, moreover, verse 30 says, as a continuation of what's been said in verse 29, whom he did predestinate, we'll deal with predestination more next week, them he also called. You see the links in the chain? You see how they've started? You've got the link of foreknowledge. You've got the links of the predestination that how all of these things are linked together. These saving acts of God are not instances of man securing his own salvation. They are instances of what God does to save the soul. And you said, I thought saving the soul was nothing more than just making a choice, making a decision. And if I want it, I'll take it. If I don't, I let it go. Not according to Romans chapter number 8, verse 29 and 30. That's not the way that it works. But God did this. God set apart the people. If you're one of his today, you are set apart by God. You didn't mark yourself off. God marked you off. You say, preacher, what do I do with that? What, what do I, what, how do I live my life knowing those things? Does that mean I don't talk to people about the Lord? It means you talk to them more about the Lord. It means you have more conversations about the, sa the saving of someone else. Not because of what you're doing, but every time you preach the gospel, by the way, preaching the gospel is not just behind this wooden desk. If you think that you're excluded from preaching the gospel, in your home, you're the main preacher. If, if you are a wife who's married to an unsaved husband, you are the preacher. If you're a husband who's married to an unsaved wife, you are the preacher. 
If your parents unsaved children, you are the preacher. If you live in a home where grandparents, that, that grandparent, they are the preacher. Because where is, what is the importance of preaching the gospel? The preaching of the gospel is the way God opens the eyes of his own. You're not coming to Christ by some experience. It's amazing how many people I hear say, yeah, I was out somewhere and I'm telling you that the Spirit of God just took me over and I got saved. The Word of God's not preached anywhere. And suddenly now, they're falling in love with emotions. And all I can determine is the only emotion that comes out of you when you realize you've been saved is nothing but humility. Because when your eyes are open, there's one thing for sure you're going to know. I am way too wretched to deserve this. I am way too bad of a sinner to possibly merit the favor of God. Absolutely right you are. And absolutely right, I'm, st I'm still, I'm too wretched of myself to even ever come to the place where I look myself in the mirror and say, boy, God, God, he did that because look at me. I'm, I'm one of God's choice servants. No, the fact he lets you do anything for him is another act of his mercy. Jesus does it, does it all. Jesus paid it all, not some of it. Not 99.5% of it. Jesus paid it all. All of our worship goes to Christ alone. And next week, we'll look more specifically at verse number 30 that teaches us about the God gives the gospel and the Holy Spirit to all of his elect. And we'll deal more with the connection between predestination and calling. Again, because we're breaking this up in so many divisions, uh, don't quit on this because they're all going to be tied together. Remember, we're putting a chain together. And one couple links without the full connection may seem a little bit disjointed. It may seem like I'm not fully getting it. Just stay with it. Because we haven't covered all of it yet. Let's go ahead and stand if you would.